This podcast and the many that follow are proudly brought to you by our partner, Titleist, the number one ball in golf. Now, as it relates to earning an edge, our friends at Titleist have been the leaders since the early 1900s. And in order to compete and win at the highest level, frankly, there's no room for second best. For this reason, the best players in the world trust Titleist. Hey there, Corey Lumberg here from Altus Performance, and this is episode 13 of the Earn Your Edge podcast. Before we get into this week's episode, a big thanks to all the great feedback that we got on last week's episode with Kramer Hickok. Despite maybe not that many people being familiar with Kramer or his recent accomplishments in earning his PGA Tour card, I don't think that we've gotten more people reach out to us and tell us how much they enjoyed an episode. Kramer was an amazing interview and his story is pretty inspirational. Uh, He's got a hard work, do more attitude that is pretty infectious. So if you haven't checked it out, I would do so right away. And also thanks to all those that sent us in questions, Cam asked for mailbag questions on our Instagram post, and we got some really thoughtful questions that we'll be answering via a new episode format in the coming weeks. So stay tuned, and please continue to send us questions via our Instagram direct message. Uh, and now on to this week, we are pumped to have our very first Hall of Fame guest, a first Olympian, NHL legend, two-time Stanley Cup champ, and also very avid golfer, Brett Hull. We always like to look outside of golf to understand how other high performers have earned their edge. And Brett's story is a unique one, as his father is also a Hall of Famer and widely considered to be one of the best hockey players of all time. So to hear how his father influences development is really interesting. And Brett and Cam get into a variety of other topics as they explore the ways and means that Brett has used to develop his skills and his high performance mindset toward improving and competing that can be applied to any endeavor, not just hockey. And with his background in golf, can be especially relevant to golfers. So sit back and enjoy episode 13 of the Earn Your Edge podcast with Cameron McCormick and Brett Hull. Hello, I'm Cameron McCormick, and I want to welcome you to the Earn Your Edge podcast. By passion and practice, we at Altus are driven to decode the difference makers that high performers possess, the ways and means they use to earn their edge, to create separation from mass, to leave mediocrity in their rearview mirror, and travel this pathway to mastery. Be it through nature or nurture, or a mixture of both, the journey to uncover these things is the journey that we're on. Now, we're joined here today by a good friend of mine, Brett Hull. He's Uh, was inducted to the 2009 National Hockey League Hall of Fame. His career spanned 19 years. He served on or played with five different teams across the league. He was a member of two winning Stanley Cup teams. He's a two-time Olympian and now serves as the executive vice president of the St. Louis Blues. Now, my experience with Brett certainly wasn't on ice. It was actually in the fairways or on a golf course locally here in Dallas that he was a member at. And we grew to be uh, very good friends. We've spent a lot of time on the golf course. And so, Brett, the first question I have for you here today is, do you think you would have made a better golf professional, professional golfer than you did professional hockey player with all of those amazing accomplishments? Because I know you was an amazing golfer as well. I, I don't think so. I, uh, I think, uh, you know, as a, an athlete, you know, I was kind of trained to be a hockey player. And within that, you develop a mentality for that sport. And the mentality of a hockey player does not fit in very well with the mentality of what a golfer needs to be successful, uh, especially as, at that level of uh, greatness as, as they are at the PGA level. Yeah. Can you differentiate for me? Because clearly I haven't competed at hockey and you've competed at both golf and hockey the difference as you see it in the um, psychological, that mentality makeup? Well, you, you know, obviously in hockey, it's, it's so instinctive. There's no thinking, you know, you're standing at a face off and, you know, maybe a couple thoughts might go through your head, but as soon as that puck drops, there's no thinking Uh, at the elite level. It's all instincts and you just, react to the situation you know the puck doesn't sit on a tee and i have to think okay i gotta stay on plane i gotta i gotta get behind it and stay behind it and release it you know the puck comes to me and i i just drill it you know with all the practice i do away from the game situation it just becomes natural as i'm sure most of the golf swings do but then you don't have to 
have amnesia in hockey. Mm-hmm. You know, if you miss the net, you miss the net. You know, you, you go back and you get another chance and you, and you try to score. But like in golf, obviously, you have to have the mentality to, to forget that you just made a double bogey on the fourth hole mm-hmm. and go to the fifth tee and gather yourself and and make a great swing and start over and go, okay, I got to get those shots back. And that doesn't exist in hockey. You know, most people tell you that you, you play hockey with a, with some anger. And obviously you can't do that in golf because, you know, you need your emotions in check. And in hockey, your emotions are never in check. So I think that's the real big uh, difference. Yeah. And going back to one of the original comments that I made in the preamble there, be it through nature or nurture, I'd like to explore that landscape a bit with you if I can. So your dad, one of the most famous hockey players of all time, Bobby Hull, and your mom, Joanne, professional figure skater. And correct me on any facts right here. So you're growing up in a family where mom and dad understand what it takes to reach the top of the pyramid, to climb the ladder to the highest of heights. How much of your early upbringing was conversations around the journey to get really good at this is a very difficult journey versus it being you just go out and do what you do. If you want to be a hockey player, great. If you want to explore a different uh, sport, if you will, uh, growing up in Canada, then you can do that as well. Can you unpack that a little bit, the nature and nurture debate? Sure. It's, uh, you know, and that's a great debate. It's, uh, you know, genetically, I was obviously a little bit ahead of the curve, uh, as you just spoke with, with the athleticism of my parents. But my dad, small town Canadian farm boy, family of uh, 11 kids, and didn't, wasn't very well off. And so he was not the teaching type. He was watch and learn type. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, when we would go to on the weekends, when we would go to uh, the practice, his practices and watch him and his teammates practice, he would sit us on the bench, my, me and my brothers, and he wouldn't say, okay, here, you hold it like this and do this. He would, he would pick out a, a, a favorite player of his on his team and say, study him and watch how he does it and figure it out on your own. And that's the way he was. And my mother was, you know, being a figure skater, it's a different kind of skating, but she would definitely uh, help us with, you know, using our edges and skating uh, and things like that. So there was a kind of a cross of the teaching, but I think it was mostly uh, very genetic with, with our family, my brothers and I. Mm-hmm. How much of it was, I think what you've described right there is watch and learn, Yep. but your experience side, how much of that was backyard, uh, we'll just, we'll pour some water on a very flat area in the backyard and it'll freeze overnight and we'll, we'll call it structured versus unstructured development. Does that make sense? Right. Hey, completely. And that's, uh, it wasn't so much that, uh, you know, because when my dad left the Chicago Blackhawks and, and went to the World Hockey Association in Winnipeg up in Canada, there was a myriad of outdoor hockey rinks. Just in our community, there was three or four that we could walk to. And so you'd get your friends, you'd grab your warm clothes, your skates and your gloves and sticks, and, and you, you'd just go out and there'd be you know, 20, 30 kids out there skating with parents with their headlights on in their car shining on the ice as it got darker and you were just you were just playing hockey there was no coaches it was just uh, a Pick bunch of kids playing and and it was uh, you know until your league started you know or even during that time that's what you did i mean it was uh you know whether i it's very similar to you know baseball or football in in the united states it's it's not that you go, I want to be a football player or a baseball player. Your friends did it. And so you just did, you, you know, that's what your friends did. That's what you do. And, mm-hmm. and uh, you help each other develop, you know, skills. And, and then if they're, you know, if on the weekends, uh, we would play road hockey. I mean, it was just, it's ingrained and embedded in, in the fabric 
of, of the country and in the kids that you, you just you play hockey you play it in the summer you play it in the winter and and then uh, you can you know mix in your your baseball or football or soccer or whatever you want within that as well and so the greater majority of your time was then spent pickup games. It was backyard type hockey. It was unstructured, very similar to pickup games in local or urban areas here in, in the U.S. With, with basketball or even the example going back to golf that we see young kids showing up at the putting green and, and playing these putting contests and then deciding as a relatively smaller group, certainly not 20 or 30 gathering, but maybe three to, 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 to 10 gathering that they're going to go out and play golf. Would that be the greater majority of your experience? Exactly. And they, you know, the kids, they have their putting contests and, you know, they play for a soda or whatever. And that's, uh, that's how you develop your ideas of winning and, and mm-hmm. success and, and, uh, the feeling of, of losing that you, you don't like. And so right. uh, as small as that is, it, it has a huge bearing on how you grow and nurture into a, a, a mature adult. I think that's an amazingly insightful point you bring up right there that we should look at any experience of filling up the cup of confidence, filling up the cup of confidence uh, and competence. It's probably the best way to say it, even in the early ages, as foundational, as woven into the fabric of these are the lessons that we're going to use when we're 12, when we're 15, when we're 21. Uh, we're going to anchor back to those. It's really important. And speaking of success, I think in the golf world, like I remember coaching Jordan at 12 years old and taking him on the golf course and beating him at various contests. And I remember some distinct turning points where all of a sudden the roles were reversed. I remember the first time he beat me at a short game contest. Your dad being one of the, if not the best player of all time, is there a story, is there a distinct time where maybe you were playing pickup against him or maybe you were skating faster than him or maybe you scored one-on-one against him that you could share? Not, not really. What I was saying earlier about just watch and learn, he stayed away. He didn't, uh, you know, uh, I'll just use the example of Earl Woods. Mm-hmm. He was the direct opposite of Earl Woods. He pushed you to play. He said, if you're going to play and commit yourself, you're going to every practice, you're going to every game, and you're going to play at 100%. There's no screwing around. And, you know, I, I'll help you when you, you ask. But he wasn't the, uh, you, know, you know, come out and skate with us, you know. And I think that also has to do with how famous and popular he was in the country that it wasn't a lot of fun for him to be able to go out in public because when he would come and watch us play, he spent more time signing autographs than he did being <laughs> able to watch us play. And, that, sure. and, and um, you know, having kids of my own and uh, not, you know, obviously not at the level of fame that he had in Canada because I was in the States and there's just so much other so many other sports and popularities that uh, unless you're ingrained in the sport, they don't really know who you are, which is kind of nice at times. Yeah, it was very, uh, I can see how uncomfortable that it would be having to go out and, but not be able to watch your kids play. Yeah. You mentioned there an expectation of effort or maybe a better way to say it is purpose that your dad expected that you would be all in, not, not just dipping your toes in and testing the water, but diving in head, head first. Right. There are some, stories not with him but when he would come and watch and and you'd win you know whatever let's just say we won four to two and i would get two goals he wouldn't be the father to say you know way to go that is a great game he'd go well why didn't you get three (laughs) and uh and it wasn't in a derogatory or negative way it was uh well why didn't you get three? Yeah. You, know, you have the ability to get more, so do it. And that was a, almost a motivational type idea of thinking. Yeah, no, I, I can certainly appreciate that from my lens, or at least looking through my lens as a coach, is you always want to recognize that the athlete probably already is experiencing that level of satisfaction that they scored, or the level of satisfaction that they shot a pretty good round or a super low round or maybe won the golf tournament. But at the same time, what he in kind of thinking through this is probably trying to 
um, stimulate is a process of reflection that said, okay, that's great, but let's not rest on that laurel. Let's look for opportunities to improve. And that's something that you probably carried your entire career, correct? Absolutely. And I, there's a great golf story I have at uh, Royal Oaks in Dallas. And, and I know a good friend of yours, Randy Smith, who mm-hmm. is the, uh, the head pro there for many years and, and taught Justin Leonard and a number of players. But one in particular was Harrison Fraser, mm-hmm. uh, who I got to be friends with and played some golf with. And they were talking, uh, we were in the grill room and they were talking. Harrison had a particularly uh, good season. I believe he lost in a playoff uh, to Ernie Els at uh, one of the tournaments. And, you know, I think he came second or third three or four times. And we were sitting having a uh, cold beer, and Randy was just talking about, okay, you came second this many times and third this time. He goes, what if you had one less putt around? He goes, well, that's four shots. How many did you lose by that tournament? And it, it was like, well, lost by two. He goes, well, you would have won by one. Mm-hmm. And that mentality that I learned right there was was very similar to what I thought in hockey was, you know, you find a way to get that one more goal or, you know, when you would lose or let's say win two to one and I would, uh, I wouldn't be the happiest guy in the dressing room and the players would wonder why. And I'd go, well, if I would have done my job better and scored another goal, you know, we wouldn't have had to work that hard, you know, to win. We would have won by a bigger amount and it would have been easier on all of us. And, and that's kind of the same mentality. And it was, uh, it, it was, it was a great mental lesson for me. So let's take a quick break in the action to recognize one of our partners, Under Armour. It's Under Armour's mission to make all athletes better through passion, design, and the relentless pursuit of innovation. And that ethos or mission statement couldn't be more aligned with the Earn Your Edge podcast. We're thankful to be powered by Under Armour. Let's dive into the playing career, particularly the professional part of the playing career. But before we get there, I want to just ask one quick question about you growing up playing hockey. If if we could see a film of who the person was, Brett Hull, as a 15, 16, 17-year-old before going to college, who would Brett Hull have been back then? And then how is that different to the Brett Hull that showed up and played his first game, which I want to explore in Game 3 of the Stanley Cup Finals for Calgary Flames? Oh, God. Uh, to put it where you can visualize, I, I would have been a half-sculpted pile of clay <laughs> that you could see there was potential for this to be a beautiful Remington bronze. Were you aware of that but, at the time, though? No, not whatsoever. <laughs> but looking back, that's exactly what it was. And you could see it could go either way. I mean, it, you know, the sculptor could have just picked it up and started all over again or kept going and made it that beautiful bronze. And that's what I was like. And then going into that first game, when I finally made it to the NHL, that sculpture was finished, but he hadn't put it into the buffer or the shiner yet to get mm-hmm. that beautiful shine on it. And so there you could see it there, but it wasn't quite finished. And that's, I think, just like young guys in the, on the PGA, they're, you know, although today they're coming in ready to go and winning, as, as Jordan has proven. Uh, but in the past, you know, it took a year or two for them to really get their shine and learn how to win and learn how to travel and all the things it takes to be a PGA player. And that was that was me. Uh, you know, I had the, uh, the skills and, and the, uh, at the level I could compete, but I just hadn't figured out the nuances yet to, to really uh, take it to the top level. And was that process largely psychological or was it a maturation both uh, in physical skills as well? And, and, and how would you elaborate or explain the way you looked at improvement back then? Yeah, it was, uh, it was a little bit of both. But I believe it was mostly psychological 
and way less physical, you know, because you're, you're already, you know, I played two years of college hockey. So I was, I was already basically a, a man, but when you get to the NHL, you realize, well, yeah, you're, you're a man, but these guys are, you know, finely tuned and, and, you know, playing college hockey, you know, there's, you still have a lot of fun, right? You're, you're maybe not totally committed to uh, fitness and especially back when I was young, because, you know, we didn't really have the protein shakes or the, the intricate workout schemes they have now. It was, you know, you had a universal gym or a couple of dumbbells and you had Bud Light and that was like a protein <laughs> shake. And, and so it's different than it is today. And uh, so it was, uh, you know, that's the way it was. And it, it took a little time to figure it out. But the Bud Light wasn't consumed before, during, and after games. It was strictly isolated after the games, wasn't it? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> so you're thrust, you're thrust into the crucible of pressure environments in your chosen sport. Game three, Stanley Cup finals, playing for the Calgary Flames. What did the Calgary Flames see in you? And how, I guess, ready were you for playing the Stanley Cup finals as your first game in the NHL? Well, it was, uh, let me tell you, it was a, uh, it was an experience, um, because it was in the Montreal Forum. And the Montreal Forum is the, uh, the cathedral of hockey in Canada f- for century. It, 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 it's, it's like Yankee Stadium. It's like Madison Square Garden. And all of a sudden, well, if it's your first game and it's the first game of the year or an exhibition game, it's one thing, but, all of a sudden it's game three of the Stanley Cup finals and you've been a professional for about, uh, I don't know, four or five days, uh, just signing my first contract. It was, uh, it was an eye opening event that I think was great. I was able, I, I could play. I think a little bit, you know, as they say, ignorance is bliss. Mm-hmm. I, wasn't exactly sure of the magnitude of the situation because uh, it just of the lack of experience of, okay, this is a Stanley cup finals. I hadn't ever uh, been there. And uh, it was fun. I could have actually gotten a, f- a couple of goals that game, but I didn't. And, uh, but it was a great experience. And uh, that's one of the greatest highlights of my career is when I tell people, you know, my first game was in the Stanley cup finals of the Montreal forum. Yeah, it's, it's, it's similar to, let's say, Bo Hostler's experience of his first professional golf tournament being 16 years old and teeing it up in a U.S. Open. And the question that I've asked Bo on countless occasions is how impactful is that in terms of a lesson you, you still um, reflect on and use as, as power today? And he says it's massive, and I think you're just echoing that sentiment as well. What sort of pressure did you deal with, given that that was your first game, and how did you overcome that pressure? Or was it going back to your statement, ignorance is bliss? I really didn't feel it because it was just like it was all novel. Yeah, that's what it was. It was kind of ignorance is bliss. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, for me, I never really worried about pressure because growing up in Canada as Bobby Hull's son, that's all there ever was. And you hear the whispers and and, you know, kids can be cool and it's, you know, why is any better? You know, he's Bobby Hulson. He should be the best player on the team and, and uh, you know, whatever it was and trying to live up to the expectations my whole life made, made me stronger, more resilient and, mm-hmm. and, you know, more able to accept and deal with pressure because I, I had it my whole life if, if that's what you want to call it. Sure, and, sure. You know, so when I was 15 years old, I finally, I looked at myself in the mirror and I said, you know, you're, you're Brett Hull. You know, there's only one Bobby Hull and there'll never be another one. So you be Brett Hull and be proud of who you are and keep one foot in your father's shadow, but take your other foot and make your own shadow. And that is going to be how you're going to be successful. And, and that was my mind and that was my thinking from then on. You had mentioned early in the conversation and you touched on it a couple of minutes ago, the instinctiveness. I had this hockey in my DNA 
When do you remember that instinctiveness of being in the right place for the puck to come to you and the instinctiveness of maybe knowing where your teammates were as they're darting down uh, the ice without even really needing to see them showed up? Was that in youth hockey? Was that when you were in college or was that only when you were a professional? I know when it happened. Uh, It wasn't a feeling or anything. But my first year pro, I got sent to the minors in Moncton, New Brunswick. And I started, I was a, I'm a notorious slow starter. And so I'm in Moncton and I, I just signed this contract and I was Bobby Hull's son. And so I'm in the minors and, and uh, we have a tough coach, Terry Crisp, who won, he ended up winning the Stanley Cup as the coach of the Calgary Flames um, two years after I was traded to St. Louis. And he was uh, notoriously tough. And so I didn't get a lot of ice time. I wasn't given an opportunity really to, to succeed or even to become a professional because I was, I mean, I was playing three or four shifts a game Mm -hmm. and uh, it was very, it was hard on me because I, I loved playing. And I think that was the problem with him. He didn't like the fact that I played with a smile on my face (laughs) and uh, you would enjoy it. Yeah. Because he, he played for the, the Broad Street Bullies, the Flyers in the early 70s when they won their Stanley Cups and were the notoriously tough team in the NHL. And and that's where he was taught that's not how you played the game. And so I had three goals at Christmas. And uh, I went home and, uh, you know, I came back and I said, you know what, I'm just, I'm, I'm going to figure this out and, and show him that I can play. And I don't know what happened over Christmas, whether the, the management in Calgary said, hey, start playing this kid, right? We're mm-hmm. trying to figure out if, if he can play. And so I got uh, some more ice time, and I ended up scoring 50 goals. And uh, the first rookie ever in the American Hockey League to score 50 goals. And the minute I got back there after Christmas, I, it's like that advice my dad really rang true and I knew where to go to score. And I, I set a record with scoring goals in 15 straight games. And like I said, I got 50 goals. And so it was, that's when it hit me. Amazing. That this is how you do it. Yeah. You, you found your superpower. It was a nice Chris. It was a nice Christmas gift under the Christmas yeah. tree and you showed back up with it. You kicked ass. <laughs> it was a nice Christmas present because it was, uh, I don't know if you've ever been to Moncton, New Brunswick. I didn't even know where it is. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly right. And it is uh, very cold and it's probably closer to uh, probably closer to London than it is Vancouver. Oh, gotcha. That's how far <laughs> east it is. <laughs> A place that uh, I'm not going to go play golf anytime soon, they, apparently. No, you are not. What are the other superpowers that are necessary to play your chosen sport at the highest level? I mean, like you look at the NFL – and the diversity of skill sets from position to position is massive. Where, yeah. Whereas you look at playing golf at the highest level, and yes, you have the Dustin Johnsons of the world and the Jim Furyk's of the world that survive on different skill sets. But yet at the same time, looking at their skill sets, they're largely similar as compared with the contrast of the NHL. In world's best NHL hockey, how different are those superpowers? Well, I think they're, I think they're different. I don't think it's as far away from golf as you might think. I think there might be a few more. So my idea of the superpower, I think, will be different than Wayne Gretzky's or uh, a Cam Neely, who is a big, tough scoring winger, where I played a different style than him as a scoring winger. Mm -hmm. So my theory was this. Never show them that you were hurt. Never, never let them know they could stop you. Never show anybody up, which to me translated in be invisible. Hmm. Uh, I would tell the coach if, unless I got out there like right away and scored, I want to change. Take me off the ice. I would never celebrate a goal unless it was obviously a, a huge overtime winning goal or something. Uh, rarely raised my arms or, or, or got excited. 
because I wanted so I didn't want a big six foot four, two hundred and twenty pound defenseman. I didn't want to embarrass him so that he's on the bench now going that SOB, I'm like just in his mind going, right. wait till we get out there again. I'm gonna cross check him or slash him or I'm gonna try and hurt him. I just want to go away and be out of his mind's eye mm-hmm. so that I can play the game and I'd be right back out there and be able to do exactly what I've been doing and keep scoring. Obviously they knew I was there and obviously played me very tough, but I would never let them know that I was hurt. You know, whether it was because back when I played in the early nineties, it was, it was a vicious game, you know, cross checking in front, uh, you know, you, you if you would see some of the highlights, you would think that players would get those whiplash concussions, you know, every shift. And so I would never let them know I was hurt, and I would never, you know, like I said, celebrate. And that was, see, that was my theory. And then there's other theories where, you know, if you were a tough guy, you know, you go and grab that same defenseman, and you drop your gloves with him and fight him. And, and they're... Their idea was, well, I'm going to intimidate him mm-hmm. so I get more room to score goals. Right. So, the, But it's all in the same thing. It was whatever way you thought it was your way to be able to score goals and help your team win. And and there's a di- whole bunch of different theories on that. So. Right. Sure. It makes sense. You found your own personal perform- right. performance DNA. And that's, yeah, like a cloak of invisibility. Right. And that's that stealth bomber reference that I've read in a couple of articles back in from your playing career, correct? Right. Exactly. So we've talked a lot about your scoring prowess, the amazing efficiency you had, your, your your ability to stealth your way around into the right position and ultimately be the offensive weapon that you were. Uh, how many fights did you get in your entire career? Well, I say I got into two. My teammates will say I didn't get into any. Uh, <laughs> I remember the, the first one I got into, it was definitely a fight and there was punches thrown but the referee was so shocked that it was me. <laughs> he gave us both two minutes for roughing. And so so my buddies, the tough guys I played with, still give me uh, hell saying, uh, you, no, it wasn't a fight. You only got four minutes for roughing. And I was like, oh, God. <laughs> I got so mad at the ref. I was like, no, you have to give me fighting. <laughs> <laughs> I've always for a long time, the, the amount of time we've played golf together, uh, kind of taken the discretion as the better part of valor from the gamesmanship and talking crap on your golf game in, <laughs> in, in fear of what you do to me. But now I realize that was actually unwarranted. You wouldn't have done no, anything to me. <laughs> exactly. I wouldn't have. Yeah. That's great. So let's cycle into a part of the conversation. We love to ask elite performers, this high performance uh, athletes or, or even individuals in the business domain is there a particular failure or setback that while it was difficult to go through throughout your sporting career was foundational that set you up for later success? Yeah, we've already touched on it. It, it was, uh, you like know, after I, uh, yeah, after I got uh, signed my contract and my first game was in the Stanley Cup finals, mm. uh, I go to training camp uh, next year and make it all the way through and even go with the team to Boston for the first game of the season. And I don't make the lineup in, in game one. And uh, the next morning uh, is when they told me they're going to send me down to the minors. And I was absolutely devastated. Mm-hmm. Um, I had no idea, you know, I, I didn't know where I was going to live. I didn't have a car. I, I don't know where, in, just like you, or where the heck Moncton, New Brunswick is. I, I, I am phoning my agent saying trade me get me traded what do you mean i'm not in the nhl <laughs> uh, you know, but now looking back at 54 years old going um that's just another learning curve that happens in in your maturation you know to teach you how to be a, an adult and to deal with a setback and and to to find things on your own you know you know, they say going to college is, you know, you, know, you learn to be a man. That's baloney. You're taken care of by tons of people when you're in college. You got billet families or you live in a dorm or then you go off campus and you live with your your teammates. And if you're on scholarship, they give you money. You, you, you know, I mean, it's it, it is 
it's easier than riding the buses in junior, but uh, when all of a sudden you're a you're a man and and uh, you've got to figure out, you know, I got to get a house or rent a house or an apartment or, you know, it's not like you're going to uh, Chicago, right. you know, right. to play for a minor league team. I mean, it's Moncton, and uh, it was a great eye-opening experience. And uh, I look back, and and uh, it did me a world of good. Supremely thankful for it. When you were suffering, and the, the, I would imagine, and I'm going to project here, and maybe I'm wrong difficult times in your career, like 93-94, another 57-goal season, and then 94-95, 29, playing for the Blues. Uh, Maybe it was the transition across to the Stars. What I'm getting at here is, what is the psychological framework? What's the strategy to get out of a performance funk? Well, it's, to to me, you, you know, when I went through scoring droughts, I would find that I got complacent, a little lazy um, because I, I don't care what anyone says. You have to be the hardest working guy on the ice to score goals. You have to work to get open. You have to work to get the puck. You have to work to beat your defender. You've got to work to beat the goalie once you beat the defender. And within that, you have to be mentally sharp and tough. And what I would find is that I would just assume which we all know is not good, that it was just going to happen. Oh, I didn't score. I'll score next game. Or, mm-hmm. oh, geez, I haven't scored in a couple of games. Well, I'll score this. We're playing this team. I'll score. I always score against them. And all of a sudden, you wouldn't, and it'd be like, okay. And then uh, it didn't happen a lot. And so what I would do is go on the ice with uh, as many pucks as I could find and just shoot into an empty net and never miss the net and get that feeling of the puck going in the net every time. And then I would go home and go, okay, well, now that's what you got to do. But within that, you've got to get back to work, right? you know, to get in the situation where, where that vision can come. And, and my dad gave me that advice as well uh, when I was young. He goes, don't see the goalie, see hmm. the net. Hmm. And so that's because that's where you're shooting it. You're not shooting it at the goalie. And, you know, so I practiced and practiced and practiced. And during practice, I never shot to score. I would shoot where I would score in a game mm-hmm. because goalies were are notorious cheaters in practice. Because it's hard when you're, you've got 25 guys constantly just barraging you with pucks. And, it, you know, you can't – and I knew they would cheat. And so wherever I was on the ice, I would picture myself in the game and where the goalie would be, and I would shoot to where he wouldn't be. Even if he you know, went to the dumbest side of the net where he would never be, I would just hit him in the pads because I knew if I hit that spot in the game, it would go in. Gotcha. Insightful there. You mentioned something there that actually has a good amount of research behind it, and I think it's amazing how athletes, uh, performers, we'll call them, don't necessarily need to know that there's scientific validity to a concept in order to know that it works for them. And that's the concept you described of error-less or error-free practice. I'm just going to go shoot and see pucks go into the net. Now, now, granted, that's not error-less because you could always miss the net, but let's remove the goalie out of the context and let's just see that I'm having success. I'm having these moments of mastery that give me that impression that I can hit the place in the net that I'm intending for the puck to go into. And then that translates back into practice that in turn translated into the game. So it's really, really interesting. So speaking of, and this is the last question I'll ask on getting better. You're very self-reflective. That started off as lessons from dad, watch and learn, think and learn. And you've done that your entire career. But I think at almost any level of performance, we face this paradox of signal and noise, who to listen to, what advice to listen to versus what advice to tune out, and particularly prevalent when you're competing on the world stage as you did in the NHL. So two-part question, how did you filter out the noise from the signal and who was or what were the sources that were your signal? Who would you listen to outside of yourself? Well, the people I respected in the game and thought were knowledgeable. Um, You know, I always believed I had a a really high IQ of hockey, and I was a good listener to everyone. But like you said, I could just let 
you know, for people that just like to hear themselves talk, and uh, I wouldn't believe the advice they were giving me or if I thought they were crazy, you know, I could let that go. But, you know, speaking with, you know, Wayne Gretzky and, and great players like that, you know, you listen and you, you gather it and then you wrap your own theories around their theories and, and try to come up with how does that fit into your, your game? You know, cause Wayne and I play two different positions, but you know, he's also the, the greatest player that ever played the game. And so his insightfulness was incredible uh, and lucky to be friends with him. And then just to watch his demeanor, he wasn't the biggest guy. I mean, he was very demure, but he also was the the meanest guy out there. Like if it was one nothing, he wanted it five nothing. If it was five nothing, he wanted it ten nothing. <laughs> and he wanted to score every goal. And I'll give you a, a great example. When he got traded to St. Louis and we played together for the short period of time we did, we were in San Jose and, and we were uh beating him. I can't remember. It was a it was fairly tight. And uh I had already had a hat trick. I believe he had three goals and two assists and there was uh, maybe 10 seconds or less on the clock. And the faceoff was in front of our bench on our side of the red line. And so I'm standing there ready for just a clock to tick down and we're going to win. And he goes, he goes switch with the defenseman and San Jose had pulled their goalie. And I go, well, what do you, but I mean, there's seven seconds left. He goes, change with the defenseman. <laughs> And I'm like, okay. And the defenseman heard. And so he moves up to my spot. He goes, he goes, I'm going to win this face off back. You one time it into the empty net down there. <laughs> and I'm like, what? I mean, and this, so this is how ruthless he was and, and how competitive he was. And he won the face off back to me. And I took a slap shot right off of their centerman's ankle. And he went down, and this guy wanted to kill me because he also knew what the situation was. And he looks at me, and he wants to get up and kill me. And I just look at him, and I point at Wayne and go, he made me do it. (laughs) (laughs) And everything was okay. It's always okay with a goat, does it? Yeah. The guy knew me, right, from playing against me. He knew he he knew I that wasn't who uh, I was. Right. You know, I just wanted to okay, let the time click down, and we'll go have a cold beer and enjoy the victory. So, <laughs> but that's how unbelievable Wayne was. But you learn from that and go, boy, yeah, be that vicious guy and want to get that next goal and another one and another one. That's brilliant. You just answered right. two two questions in once, and they were supposed to be quick hitters, and you answered <laughs> it with an amazing story. I was about to ask who was the best player you played against, and who was the best player you played with, and the answer to that question is Wayne Gretzky. So, yeah. So a follow up I have is an interesting question to to understand high performance is to ask the question who was really good at playing in the NHL. But when you looked at them or you looked at their skill set, it didn't really make sense. So who was good at it and really shouldn't be? Oh, man. Uh, You know, I and I play this guy is a a great little golfer, too. He's a member at Whisper Rock and his name is Ray Whitney uh, right off the top of my head. And uh, Ray's probably, uh, you know, 5'10", you know, 160. You look at him and and. You know, to this day, you know, you say Ray Whitney and, you know, you probably, you know, maybe 1% of somebody might go, oh, yeah, Ray Whitney, I know him. He was right. a pretty good player. But he played 23 years in the NHL. His dad was a, a policeman in Edmonton, uh, and he was the practice goalie for the Oilers. And Ray was the stick boy for those great Oiler teams with Gretzky and Messi and all of those guys. And I guarantee Ray being around those guys for all those years being the stick boy made him become a better hockey player than he should have been. And to have a 23-year career uh, for a guy like that, uh, I'm just amazed and and, uh, have a ton of respect for him. And boy, he can play golf too. Shifting gears, a post-career, and I, I will also touch on it if you want to tell a story about it, the winning goal. In fact, let's do it. 
<laughs> winning goal, Dallas Stars, Stanley Cup Finals. I was fresh over here into the United States. So that was that was foundational like moment or event that um, connected me with the Dallas Stars and therefore I'm still connected with them. So I thank you for that. But but speak to right. speak to that situation. That was uh, crazy. It was uh, I had uh, gotten a kind of a I guess you could call it a, a pissing match with the uh, management of the Blues, and uh, we decided we were going to part ways. And I signed as a free agent with Dallas in the, the uh, ninety eight ninety nine, and uh, there was a big article, and it was uh, uh, the Stars have signed the missing piece of the puzzle. Mm. And you know, like I said earlier, I, I never—I was never a, a pressure guy. I grew up with pressure my whole life. It didn't bother me in the least. But once the season ended and the playoffs started, it hit me like a ton of bricks. And it was—I kept hearing it over and over in my mind—the missing piece, the missing piece. And and I, I'm like, if we don't win, it's going to be my fault. And I put so much pressure on myself; I could barely play in the first round against Edmonton. I don't think I got, I may have not even gotten a point in the first few games, and but we won and we swept them four straight. And then we went on and then I had to play the Blues who I had just left to sign with Dallas. And there was even more pressure, but as each game went on and the success was forming and I realized how good we really were as a team you know, the pressure left and it was good. And then finally we go to the, the finals and game six and triple overtime. And I had a torn MCL and, and uh, had really hurt my groin earlier in that game. And so I wasn't really even playing in, in the third overtime when Pat Verbeek, who was taking my spot on my line, he broke his skate blade. And the coach said, he goes, Holly, can you give me, give me a shift? And I said, absolutely. And I went over the boards and that's when the, the face-off happened and the play occurred, and I went to the net, and we scored. And I can't, I can't even imagine, except for when I look at those guys like Phil Mickelson, Adam Scott, who, who win their first major, and the, the excitement and the tears and uh, what the, the emotion that must just leave your body uh, and the pressure is. That, and that's what I felt, and it was the greatest uh, – it's the greatest experience of my life. Brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. And now you're serving as executive vice president with the St. Louis Blues, and you have a career playing in the NHL as a leader. When you think of your role as a leader of an organization, the front office, and its influence both internally to the team network, coaches and players, and then externally to the city and the fans of the St. Louis Blues, what do you think are the most important facets of your role of being a leader of the organization that you dwell on and try and, I guess, execute to on a daily basis? Well, it's, it's twofold. With the hockey, you, you have to have the team and the players and the managers, they all have to believe that that you're on their side, that you're doing everything you can to make the team successful. Whether you have a, whether you have a hand in the coaching or, or scouting or whatever, they need to know that they're not doing their job just to, you know, get through 80 games and then that's it. You know, they need to know that their purpose of trying to win a Stanley cup is, is for real. And then on the other side, you have to portray the franchise in the community as uh, as a pillar of strength and yeah we're a we're a sports franchise and and you know we want to win but you know what we're here for our community as well and we're here for charities and we're here to help the community become a better place and help the community have have, have team spirit and it's nice to have an organization like the St. Louis Cardinals that we are very close with and uh, Bill DeWitt the owner is is a huge hockey fan and still plays and skates with the alumni. So yeah, so it's an all around, you want to be successful and you need the help of the community and the businesses for sponsorship and, and to raise the money so you can pay these salaries that the players get today, but you have to give back to that community and, and they have to know that, that the team cares 
about the community. And, and so that it kind of, everyone's kind of holding hands mm-hmm. and, and that's what we try to do. Yeah. What you're alluding to there is that there's an internal and external partnership that uh, we're all working towards that same goal, whether you're talking about the inner workings of the organization or even in the community of fans or even the community of sports teams that are part of the, uh, the city of uh, St. Louis or even the surrounding areas that are supportive of those uh, professional sports teams. Amazing, right. amazing insight. Fantastic. And nobody nobody does uh, the charity work better than the PGA Tour. Yeah, indeed. Great example for it. One, one final question, and it's a big question. Is there one thing, one piece of advice or a couple pieces of advice that you would offer or give to an aspiring youth hockey player? And then perhaps the advice is even even crosses into other sports. Maybe it's a golfer, maybe it's a football player, maybe it's a basketball player as a youth. One piece of advice. Absolutely. There's, it's, it's one, and I, I say it to, uh, like you said, I say it to every young athlete I meet, whether it is uh, a golfer, a football player, baseball player, hockey player, it is fundamentals. You know, if it's golf, you, you better start with your grip. And once you get that grip, you know, then it's your alignment. And, and then that's the foundation of your game. And if it's hockey, I go, you have to learn and work on your skating. And then when you, you get your skating, then you can work with the, your stick and your puck and, and learn to pass and shoot and, and things like that. But without those fundamentals, you have the basis of nothing because your game will collapse. And the other point is have fun. Have fun, enjoy what you're doing, because if it isn't fun, you are not going to improve. You won't want to play. You won't want to be around the game. So, And I tell coaches and parents that as well. The kids have to be having fun. And without it, you know, they're finished as far yeah. as I'm concerned. It's, it's very easy to get bored at what you're doing. It's very easy to look at what you're doing as drudgery if it's not enjoyable. And so that foundation of participation is enjoyment. And that's participation even at... The professional level, I see it all the time. The guys that have fun in practice rounds, generally the guys that get most out of their practice rounds and generally would be the, well, I say guys and girls, even into the LPGA tour, that enjoy performing for the opportunity to demonstrate the best version of themselves on any given day. So I think it's amazing advice. And far too often that advice uh, is seen as somewhat less valuable then maybe some advice, particularly in the golf domain, of swing instruction because it's right. not sexy, right? People right. want to people want to talk about positions in the swing and um, certain in vogue uh, clubs or swing methodologies. But quite frankly, it boils down to doing the simple stuff really, really well and making sure that your attitude is always an attitude of looking forward with hope, looking forward with excitement and joy at what you're absolutely doing so you've been an amazing role model as a professional sports person an amazing role model as an executive within an amazing sports organization we can't thank you enough for that and i certainly can't thank you enough for spending an amazing amount of time with us on the earn your edge podcast so holly from the bottom uh, thank my, you from the bottom of my heart you're an amazing person and thank you for being my friend my pleasure thank you you too and uh, anytime uh, you want me you just call all right you are the man you have a great you, day buddy. and, I'll, I'll and be keep che- keep going with you and jordan will do mate i'll be cheering hard cheers Thanks very much for listening to this episode. If you want to learn more about Altus Performance, go check out altusperformance.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at Team Altus and Instagram at Altus Performance. Also, thanks to Cordy Walker for his wonderful production work on this and coming episodes of Earn Your Edge.